believers that are pretty new in the faith, and uh, he is giving them a message. And we will see uh, some of the issues that they were dealing with at that time. And this passage that we're going to read today is a small portion of this uh, first chapter of this book. Here we see that he's talking to people that before thought they were completely alienated from God. They were not part of the Jewish uh, nation, but they were Gentiles, far from God and pagan in all their ways. So we're going to open up our Bibles to chapter 1 of Colossians. And would you please stand for the reading of God's word as we look at these three verses in chapter 1 of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Verses 21 through 23. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you bless the reading of this word and the meditations of our thoughts so that we would carry out your will and feel the joy of doing our part in this commission. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As I looked at these three verses over the last few weeks, I thought, well, There's not a whole lot there. And some people said, well, you're just going to preach on three verses. And then I started to delve into the text. And always God's word is much deeper than we can imagine. And then it became a problem of uh, there's so much to say. There's too many things to do with this word of God. It's not just three verses. It's an immeasurable depth that God has in these words. Today, I want to focus on basically just one concept, one word out of these three verses, and it's idea of reconciliation. It tells us in the text that these people were reconciled, and I want to explore what that means in three different areas. What reconciliation meant as the work of Christ, what he did to reconcile us, and then in two points of application, what does it mean for us when we deal believer to believer within the faith? And feels unwell, the uh, air conditioning is working in the cafeteria, so perhaps if they wanted to, they could get up and move in there. All right. Thank you. Thank you to our deacons. Uh, They've just announced that if you're feeling unwell because of the heat, and I know it can get to you, uh, the cafeteria has really good air conditioning right now, so uh, we hope and pray that you can stay through the service, but if it really begins to bother you, please avail yourself of fresher, cooler air that's outside in the hallway and in the cafeteria. So you're welcome to do that. So let me continue. I want to look at these three areas, which is one, the work of Christ, what he did in reconciling us, and two applications, one, believer to believer, and two, believer to unbeliever. And I want to look at those things. One of the first things I did as I studied was I looked at the word reconciliation or reconciled in the dictionary. And it has a couple of important meanings. The first meaning has to do with uh, making two things that don't seem to fit together to fit together, to go together. Sometimes it's used as an accounting term, reconciling books. 
uh, and making the figures on this side fit the figures on that side and come together. I remember as a young person when I got my first bank account and my first checkbook, for those of you old enough to remember that checks were the ones, the main way we used to pay for things, there was that often the, the thing where you were writing a check and you thought you had the funds because you had not reconciled the checkbook to the bank statement. And there's a time for reconciling numbers, for making sure that what is on one page fits what's on the bank's statement, the real uh, statement. And that is one of the meetings of reconcile, to put things together so that they fit together. Obviously, the other meeting that we're much more familiar with is when we reconcile relationships. And uh, this church is called Church of the Redeemer. God has redeemed us through the work of Christ. And one of the areas of redemption is this reconciliation. It's this idea of restored relationship. And this is one of the ones that I want to focus on. There are a lot of things that we need to reconcile. Uh, The first verse in this uh, part that we're reading, it says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. And I want to talk about the evil deeds. One of the main things that we hear in our society today is that people are basically good. We keep hearing this message over and over again. Well, we may be bad on the outside, have done some bad things, but deep down inside, in our hearts, we're basically good people. Now, to me, there's no doctrine and there's no statement, no philosophy that should be more easily to dismiss than that. Because everywhere we look, like Micah talked a little bit a a while ago, the killing in this church, senseless, hate-filled It doesn't come out of a heart that's really deep down good. And for any one of us that are parents, we know one thing we never had to do was give our children instructions on how to be bad, right? That just happens automatically. I didn't have a class for my daughters or sons on, hey, son, here's how we tell a little white lie to cover our mistakes. No, they just learn it instinctively Because our nature is that we are evil deep down inside. There's got to be some reconciliation between our idea that we're really good and God's word that says, no, you're not really good. Jesus himself said, out of the heart comes all sorts of evils and murders and adulteries out of the evil treasure that's inside of us. So sometimes when we're reconciling things, We need to realize one way is false and one way is truth. If my bank, if my checkbook says I have $200, but the bank statement says I have $0, guess which one is true? That one is the real statement. When the world tells us we're basically good and God says, no, you're not. You're basically evil. That one's correct. And we need to change our minds and think correctly because the only way to reconcile these things is to know which one is the absolute truth. Now, this statement says that we were reconciled to him and that we were alienated from him before. This is a letter written to Gentiles who did not know the privilege of the Jewish nation of having been the chosen people of God. These people were pagan. These people did not know that there was this one God that loved them 
and was trying to draw them to themselves. And they did things like worship idols and do all these evil deeds. And that's the way they lived. Now, as far as God goes, these people were alienated from him because they did not know him. They did not have faith in him. And so they were all alienated. But as Paul explains in his other epistle to Romans, the Jews were also alienated from God. Because sin separates us and alienates us from him because he is pure and perfect. And in the sense of God's kingdom, in the sense of who you are before God, we're all alienated. We are all illegal aliens in God's world. There are no people that are pure in heart to be considered gods by nature. This is something that we got to get a hold of. We None of us belong if it wasn't for what Christ did for us. What we deserve is to be eternally deported to a very hot place. But God stepped in. And so he not only said, you're not any longer illegal aliens trespassing on my world and my kingdom. I want you to be part of this. And so he has reconciled these people to himself. I love the verses that came right before. And if I don't know, I wasn't here last week. But this is an amazing statement that were the verses from last week talking about Christ and who he is and his preeminence. And the majesty of Christ before all things, created all things, all things are for him. And what he does And it says in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is an amazing statement. Here we go on to see that when he reconciled all things to himself by the blood shed on the cross. Now, Paul, in this verse 21 is saying that includes you, the Gentile believers in this other place, this pagan city of Colossae. He's saying you are part of that reconciliation that has gone on because of what Christ did. I fear that sometimes the church today doesn't quite get what Jesus did for us on the cross. And I fear that sometimes we have a picture of Jesus that's just not quite complete. And the older I've gotten in the faith, the more I've come to appreciate what he did. We see Jesus very often on the cross suffering for us and dying And especially for us guys, it's kind of hard to see him as, that's my champion, dying on a cross. Most of the time when someone dies, it's a sign of defeat. It's a sign of like, you didn't make it. You failed at what you did. And so we have a hard time understanding how do we follow this Jesus who came to rescue, came to save, and he ended up dead. It seems like incongruous. It seems like those things don't reconcile with each other. But I think it's because we don't quite understand what he was doing. I think in this instance where he is on the cross, he is doing something magnificent. He is doing something that the scripture says here that he was reconciling us by his blood shed on the cross. And here the picture that I see, if you remember the scriptures in the Old Testament, that God had set up this system where the high priest would go up and once a year take the blood of the lambs and go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it all over the inside of the Holy of Holies. 
And year after year, that happened once a year. It was the most important day of their year, the Yom Kippur Day. And that blood was supposed to make a covering so that people would be okay with God and God would be okay with people. That blood came from the lamb that was slain to cover our sins. But what did we do? What did they do before they killed the lamb? Well, they placed their hands on it and confessed their sins. They said, here's the sin that I've done and confessed it with the hands laid on the lamb. And it is like a transference that happened from our sin being placed on the lamb and then the lamb is slaughtered to save us. The high priest would take that bowl and the hyssop branch and enter into this holy of holies, opening up the curtain and going in there by himself and sprinkling the blood on the curtain and on all the things. But that's the blood on which confession had been made. That's the blood on which my sins that I confessed on that lamb had been transferred to. So when that veiled was sprinkled every year with the blood that was tainted with my sin, it left a record of my guilt and sin on that curtain. Every year. Can you imagine year after year, we talk about the Holy of Holies as being this beautiful, godly place where the presence is there, but we also forget that it was drenched with blood once a year, every year. What did Jesus do? When Jesus was dying on that cross and spilling his blood for us, he was the lamb. And it says in Hebrews that he entered into the sanctuary, into the temple. And in we, he walked in there with his own blood and sprinkled that curtain. That blood was not tainted. That was pure, perfect, holy blood. And what effect did it do? What did it do? It wiped clean the guilt of that was recorded. That's amazing. That's our Savior. His blood was the only one that was pure enough and perfect enough and good enough to undo the record of our sin that was on that curtain. He wiped it clean for anyone that has faith in Christ. What an amazing Savior. We think he went to the cross, he was crucified. We see all the events that God sovereignly manipulated and caused to happen politically, religiously, and even with his own friend that betrayed him. God caused it all to happen. And we remember at Gethsemane when Jesus was praying before he went to that final hour, he said, is there any other way? Can this cup pass from me? Listen, Jesus was not a coward. Jesus was not afraid to die for his God. Martyrs, the church is full of martyrs, who most of them said, I willingly go to give my life for God. Was Jesus afraid of the cross? No. But Jesus knew what that separation would cost. Jesus knew that he would be alienated from his own father for us. That's why he asked God three times, is there another way? 
And God said, no. And he said, I submit. I submit to the Father. And did exactly what God wanted him to do. And submitted to the torture and the ridicule and the shame. And having that sin placed on himself. Wow. What a savior. But there's another angle to it. There's another angle that we were held captive by the power of Satan. We were held captive by someone who was bright enough to know that we had broken God's laws. And he is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who will always remind me, Ernesto, you did evil. You've done this in your heart. You've said that. You didn't love the way you were supposed to. And he knew that that list existed on that curtain. And every time that God would say, I love him or I love her or I love my people, Satan would say, but they're guilty. They're guilty. And you can't break your own law. You must punish them. A dilemma. How can it be reconciled? How can it be fixed? Well, we know the story. When Christ died on that cross and shed that blood, and he applied the blood to that record, that record was wiped clean. And what happened in that instance? The curtain split from top to bottom because the blood was so pure and so fantastic that it wiped clean what we had done and the curtain could no longer contain God in just this holy of holies. God was set free to be one with us, to reconcile all things to himself. Everything we lost in Adam, we gain in Christ. When Adam sinned, Satan stepped in and said, he's mine. It's all mine because they broke your law. And God, you can't forfeit your law in order to get them back. So when Jesus was praying, is there any other way? Father, is there any other way to reconcile, to do this job and to bring them back to you? And the father said, no, no, no. Three times. By the way, sometimes we think it's not right to ask God for something more than once, that it shows not faithfulness. Well, Jesus asked God three times, is there another way? And God's answer was no, no, no. But here's the part that I like and the part that I think sometimes we miss. With all the truthfulness and with all the prophecies and with all that God had shown was going to happen... God, I think, tricked Satan into the one thing that he should have never done. He should have never put Jesus to death. Do you remember all the obstacles that were in Jesus' way so that he would not go to the cross? Even Peter said, forbid it, Lord. I'm not going to let you suffer. I'm not going to let anyone hurt you to such a degree that at their rest, Peter pulled his sword out and tried to take someone's head off because he was trying to protect Jesus. But protect them the wrong way. Because Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. Nothing can stop me. Because he knew that that was the one thing that would break the curse. It's amazing. He knew that to defeat Satan and to lift the curse and to pay the price due to God for us breaking the law and breaking relationship, he had to die and spill 
the pure and perfect blood to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing story of God with all the truth in all the right ways, tricking the number one enemy into doing the one thing that would set us free. You see how he did this? Jesus became incarnate. He became one of us. He put on flesh. And it says it right here. He died in the flesh to set us free. Adam sinned, a human, and Jesus had to be human in order to save us. And so when Satan, I think, saw, hey, God, that I've been warring for all these centuries and never been able to defeat, has become a little puny human. A man born of a virgin woman. Now we're talking. Now I can take this guy on and beat him. And from the temptation on, Satan was after Jesus to try to defeat him. He tried to get him to join And Jesus said, get thee behind me. He tempted him in every way possible. And Jesus said, no way. I'm on God's side. I only do my father's will. And then what resource did he have? Satan said, the only thing I can do is kill him. Oh, what a mistake. What a big mistake. Because in killing him, Jesus accomplished the one thing that would set us free. When an innocent one dies when the pure blood that's never sinned, that's never done any unrighteousness was spilled on our behalf. It took away the record. You can imagine Satan century after century saying, hey, I got this against that person. I got this against that person. I'm the prosecuting attorney. And I go to the judge and say, your law demands that they die. Your law demands that they be punished. And here's the record. Here's the record. And Jesus stepped into that holy of holies when he was on that cross and sprinkled that clean. And I could just see Satan's helper attorney saying, hey, Satan, the record's gone. There's no more sin. There's nothing left to accuse them of. Because Jesus wiped it clean. I like movies and I like seeing that in movies sometimes, even the secular movies of this world have a little glimpse of the story of Christ in it. There's a scene in one of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies where Jack, this, you know, crazy pirate, takes on the Kraken, the big, bad, evil monster. And he does it by jumping right into its mouth and going right on in. And that scene always reminded me, this is what Christ did. He faced the evil dragon that had enslaved us and tricked us and has put us down and killed us and destroyed humanity for so many years, said, I'm taking you on and I'm going to do it from the inside out. It was like if Jesus was on the cross was the ultimate Trojan horse. The only way to get inside and break the curse was through death and suffering. Satan didn't get it. I think the best representation of this is the C.S. Lewis book, Narnia, when they lead the lion to the stone table. But the white witch doesn't realize that if someone pure and innocent dies on behalf of someone that's guilty and a sinner, not only is that person set free, but the curse is lifted and the stone table breaks. 
That is what Christ did for us on the cross. He put his perfect blood and shed it for us so that we could go free. So that there would be no more testimony of our record of our sins taken away forever. Now, there's a couple of things that that means. If we are reconciled to God and we are free from the evil record of our past, then what does it mean for you and me? We can be friends with God. We can enjoy fellowship and be adopted as sons and daughters of him. But it also means that we're connected to each other. And this is the part that I think is important for us to hear as an application point. Two important things. What does reconciliation mean to me as a believer? Because God not only reconciles us to himself, but he is reconciling us to each other. So here's what happens. As we get right with God and we believe the message of the gospel that is by faith, not by works, that we believe in Christ as our substitute, we are connected correctly to God. And we are now in the right order with him. We're aligned. We are not alienated, but have become family, have become friends with him. But what happens if everybody is aligned correctly to Christ, then there's no way that we could be misaligned to each other. Do you understand that? That means that properly connected to Christ and to God, we have to be properly connected to each other. So what does it mean when I don't get along with my Christian friend? What does it mean when I don't forgive? What does it mean when I hold grudges and resentments against others that have done me wrong? It means that that work's not finished. We have got to keep submitting ourselves to properly align ourselves to God so that we can forgive as we have been forgiven and align ourselves correctly to each other. I think it's interesting that in this text it says very clearly because Christ reconciled us to himself in his flesh and has made us part of his kingdom, we are going to be holy and blameless and without reproach and that we are connected to each other. This book starts out by talking about how Paul had heard about the faith and the love that this church had for each other. Why? Because there was some guy named Epaphras that heard the gospel message somewhere else and went home and told the people in his town about what Jesus had done for him. He shared the message. And these people believed the gospel and started to have an effect that they started to love each other. And a little after the verses that we're dealing with today in verse 2 of chapter 2, it says that their hearts were being knit together. I, I've seen some of you ladies out there during the sermon sometimes are knitting. And it takes one thread from one piece and another thread from another piece. And you put it together and you weave it together, knit it together. And it becomes one thing. Christ in his high priestly prayer in John said, I pray that they become one. That means we got to forgive. We got to get along. We got to reconcile to each other. And if there isn't reconciliation going on, if there isn't love, if our hearts are not being knit together correctly by God, then it means 
we're still not properly aligned to the one that reconciled all things to himself. We have got to get right with God and right with each other. Now, there's also a whole dying world out there that needs to hear this message. And Epaphras heard the message from Paul and went back to his town and gave that message to the people there. And he led others to Christ. He let them know that their salvation, not by worshiping false idols, not by doing all these works and climbing up to God, but by simply humbly believing in Christ and allowing his death and resurrection to count on our stead. We see in Christ and his death, we see that Epaphras brought that message to others. And I think for our churches and for me, as I've been in the church for a long time now, and especially the Reformed churches, we have a tendency to do something that I think is a huge mistake. We believe most uh, importantly with a doctrine of sovereignty. We believe that God controls all things, and he does. But here in this text, it shows us very clearly. It says, continue in the faith. Continue to do what you've been asked to do and told to do. And I think sometimes what we do as Christians is that we hide behind God's sovereignty to not do our responsibility. And we do it in two main areas. We do it in not taking the gospel to the people that don't know it yet. And we do it in not reconciling with our brothers and sisters in Christ. God did the hard part. How dare we say, I won't forgive, I won't reconcile, when he paid the ultimate price to reconcile us to himself. There are no excuses left. We have divinity on our side cheering us on. Satan has been defeated and he has no power over us. So what is left that we cannot be at peace with each other? Only our hard hearts. It's the same thing that Jesus told the Pharisees when they asked him about divorce. Didn't Moses command that we could divorce our wives? And he said it wasn't so at the beginning. And he said Moses allowed it because of your hard hearts. Reconciliation can happen and will happen with humility and repentance and people coming together, putting Christ first and ourselves second. God wants that for us. And God wants us to take this message to the people that don't know it yet. Epaphras heard the message from Paul and went and took it to his own people in his own town. You know what I hear very often in my circles is, I'm praying for so-and-so if God wills that they be saved. I challenge some of my people to say, show me where in the Bible it says, if God wills for that person to be saved. He said, I will everyone to be saved. You take the message to them. If they don't respond, that's God's business. But how can we not share it? We are poor beggars that have been forgiven when we didn't deserve it. We have the best treasure in the world. How can we keep it to ourselves? I believe that what we need to be doing is what I call natural evangelism. 
It's not, you know, four steps, four laws, three diagrams. All those are good, and we should learn them. But what we need to do is do natural evangelism, which is you share what you love. I guarantee you there's not a person in here who doesn't have some love in their life, a hobby or something they really, really like that you can be quiet about for very long. What you love, you talk about. What you love, you tell other people about and you share it. When we're not talking about Christ, what does that say? We really don't love him enough. We really don't love him more than our own comfort and our own timidness. We're timid. I'm that way too. But there's got to be room to put Christ first and to love him so passionately that we want no excuses left for not telling people about him. There's a statement that C.S. Lewis wrote uh, that I like because in reform circles, we always talk about the glory of God and that we exist to glorify God. And that's our main aim in this life and enjoy him forever. And C.S. Lewis wrote in one of his plays, uh, his books, he said, the glory of God and as our means to glorifying him, the salvation of the human souls is the real business of life. The real business of life is the glorifying God. And there's no better way of glorifying God than to sharing the gospel with people that don't know it. And you imagine Epaphras on the day of judgment coming before and saying, these are my spiritual children that I shared the love of Christ with. Christ did all the hard work. He died on the cross. He took on Satan. He defeated him and he rose again from the dead. And all you have to do is tell people about it. Wow. But God is so good that he lets us be part of the means, the way in which people hear so that Paul could say, you are my spiritual child. And he could say to Epaphras, you are my spiritual child. And the people at Colossae, they're my spiritual grandchildren because they heard through you. What a testimony. What glorifies God more than to bring sons and daughters to him so that they can be reconciled and be made part of the family. So I leave you with these ideas. God in Christ reconciled us to himself. He's reconciling everything. He's making us new. He's making us different. He's making us value things that the world doesn't value. We know we're not good inside and of ourselves, but because Christ died for us, he is making us completely new. And we got to show this idea of reconciliation to the world, to the believers by being united and reconciled to each other in love, having our hearts knit together. I'll finish with one story. There's a young man a few years ago that was dating one of my daughters. And at one point I asked him, do you love her? His answer was a very good theological, philosophical answer. He said, I desire her best. That's a great definition of love. To desire the good, to desire the best of the other person, and then to try to do it. But you know what? Lots of times we say that. We say, I desire your best. I want the best thing for you. But not really that close to you, and I really don't desire you. <laughs> That's not having our hearts knit together. That's not real love. 
Real love is wanting to do what's good for the person, what's best for the person, giving them the best and sacrificially doing what's best for them. But it's also wanting to desire to being in their presence. This is friendship. This is the body of Christ together. Christ has reconciled him, reconciled us to himself and is reconciling us to each other. Let's continue to focus on Christ, to reach the loss with this reconciliation message, and to be united and knit together to each other in peace and love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent Christ to be the one that made the way for us. He opened the curtain by putting his blood on it and sanctifying us. We have been redeemed by the blood that was pure enough to wash away all our sins, all our guilt, all our blame. And we are reconciled to you as sons and daughters. Lord, help us to live in that, to understand it more deeply till we become mature and understand that there is forgiveness and unity that can happen as our hearts are knit together in friendship with one another. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask that you would uh, continue to sanctify our lives so that we would demonstrate to the world that we love each other. And that is the greatest gospel witness of all. The love of the church, the love of the body for each other will tear down walls and convince people of your greatness and your love for us. We pray that you would help us to witness, to be united to each other, and that we would draw all people to you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.